Dr. Uh, James, Dr. James Moses, who is a retired history of uh, history. And today we're going to be talking about the impact of culture within the uh, American uh, freedom struggle. And uh, we'll see what he has to say. He's got some uh, years and years of experience in teaching and educating on the collegiate level and uh, bound to be an exciting interview. And so, uh, Dr. Moses, if you don't mind, uh, uh, where did you begin uh, your education career? Uh, I earned a bachelor's degree at LSU. Uh, the Shreveport campus and then went to New Hampshire to the University of New Hampshire where I earned a uh, master's degree in 1986 uh, no 1989 sorry uh, and then down to Tulane University in New Orleans where I earned a doctorate of uh, history degree in 1997 came to Arkansas Tech in 99 and now here we are 22 years later and I have just retired so and how does that feel? It feels good. Yeah. <laughs> it feels good. Although, as I told you earlier, I think I'm busier now than I was during, uh, during my academic career. I'm uh, spending retirement uh, doing some writing, uh, playing some music. So I'm having a good time. And what made you chose history to begin with? Well, it's not what I started with. I started as a, uh, as a psychology major. And then I was, I was not really satisfied w with that and then was in pre-law for a little bit and then finally came to the realization that I should just study what I like uh, and what I liked was history. So it was nothing more than a selfish decision just to pursue a discipline that I enjoyed uh, and the fact that it turned into a career um, that was, you know, worked out well, worked out well. And what was it about history that you enjoyed the most? Wow, I like the drama, you know. I like the fact that history tells us about ourselves and who we are and where we came from, and then to apply that to uh, what's going on now, uh, which is the utilitarian function of history. Uh, but, you know, it's just the pure enjoyment of, of, of learning about that stuff. Uh, and then, you know, the, the drama, the struggles, uh, all of that really appeals uh, to me, you know. And what are some of the most surprising things that you've learned over the years? Oh, wow. Surprising things. I don't know. Um, well, I've shifted my focus a bit in my career. Um, I started out studying diplomatic history and political history, uh, but I became more and more convinced that the real key to understanding at least the American past is the study of culture and the interaction of culture with politics, culture with law. I'm talking about mass culture, popular culture, because it has a more profound impact on people on a day-to-day -day basis than any of these other areas do. Uh, it's our primary export to the rest of the world. It's what uh, impacts most Americans on a daily basis. And so I think probably the biggest you know, change or surprise, if you will, was uh, my, you know, this realization that I, m I might be looking in the wrong places, you know, for the key to really understanding things. And so I shifted my focus to the study of culture, popular culture particularly, uh, and it's been very satisfying. I think I found a lot of answers there. Yeah. And why do you think, well, I guess you answered the question about culture, but 
Um, is there any particular aspect of culture that you think is the most important? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think it's the relationship of culture to social change. Um, I wrote a book a couple of years ago on a rabbi in Little Rock named Ira Sanders and how he, over the course of 60 years in the Little Rock area, profoundly affected the things uh, uh, around him. And a lot of that uh, uh, study had to do with the sort of cultural and social impact that he had and those around him, how he affected those around him. Uh, uh, you know, even playing the kind of small part that he did uh, in bringing change as far as racial justice, social justice to Little Rock, uh, uh, you know, one person can be very impactful uh, in that way. Um, I decided then for this, I'm presently work on another book, and what I wanted to do was sort of take what I learned from that study and apply it to a bigger picture. And so looking at the civil rights movement in general, mm -hmm. which I think we have a too narrow a view of, uh, actually, right. and looking to broaden that view and bring in aspects of culture uh, and look at the impact that culture had on the movement, the later movement, maybe push our understanding of the civil rights movement back 10 years or so from the 50s to the 40s mm -hmm. and really start the story there and weave all of this stuff together. So there's really, there's really two stories to tell. One, what is the role of culture in life? Mass culture, popular culture. And secondly, uh, what is the real scope of what we refer to as the civil rights movement, or more broadly speaking, the, uh, the you know the fight for racial and social justice, which is in fact the subtitle of my book about Ira Sanders. So I'm taking what I did there and blowing it up a little bit bigger, going well beyond Little Rock, well beyond Arkansas, and looking at the question as a whole. Um, so you know, what role does culture play in our in our lives? Well popular culture, mass culture, uh, not only reflects who we are, but it kind of models change for us as well. It, it presents us in some aspects as, as how we can be, not only as how we are. Uh, uh, and so culture, mass culture, popular culture has always played that role, you know, like holding up a mirror to yourself. You see yourself as you really are in that mirror, but you also see what you can be, you know. You can sort of idealize yourself. It's the same kind of mirror that culture is for, for the whole society, you know. And so you take this notion that this is the role that culture plays, right? And it's, it's huge. It's a huge and significant role. Um, and then, I, I, you know, the idea is to look at how culture interplays with the movement for social justice that we all think starts with Dr. King and Brown versus Board in, in, in the mid-1950s. Uh, but it doesn't. Of course it doesn't. It goes back to day one, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, what we think of as the civil rights movement is what I refer to as sort of the classical phase 
of the movement. Brown versus Board, May 1954. Assassination of Dr. King, April 68. That's sort of the thing that we study in college, right? Most this general. is, yeah, this is the civil rights movement. Well, baloney. It's, that's the most active phase of the civil rights movement, no question. Not to deny any of the magnificent accomplishments that took place at that time. But that stuff didn't just fall out of the sky, you know. The, 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 the basis for all that was laid earlier. Going back to, oh my God, going back, I don't want to take this back uh, forever. But so just for our purposes, you can at least push it back to the World War II era. And then in order to understand the laying of the groundwork for what was to come in the 50s and 60s, you got to bring into that the legal culture of the 40s and 50s, early 50s. You got to bring into that the social changes that were taking place during and after World War II. You got to bring into that the role that culture played in setting the stage for the classical phase of the movement. So that's, it's a, you know, it's a rather ambitious project, but that's what I'm working on now. So and I'm assuming that would include, you know, uh, events such as Jackie Robinson coming to the You bet, ball. absolutely. We talk about... Veterans coming home from the war and... Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Uh, we look at, okay, we start in the 40s, you know. Right. We look at some events in the 40s that help lay the groundwork for what's to come. And the suburbs. So, <laughs> sorry? The suburbs. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Uh, which also plays a role in this, you know. So let's tie all this together, all right? So from what roots, recent roots, did the modern civil rights movement come from? The modern fight for social justice which began in, the, in earnest, in an organized fashion in the 50s and 60s. Well, we go back, as you say, to uh, World War, uh, the World War II era, something called the Freeman uh, Field Mutiny. 1945 uh, in Indiana, group of African American uh, uh, army officers want to go to the officers club. It's whites only. White officers can go to the officers club. Nazi officers can go to the officers club. POWs, all right. Black American officers cannot go in the officers club, all right. Uh, and so a protest is staged, something that would be very familiar to folks in the 1960s. Right? Civil disobedience. African American officers go into the club anyway. You know, they're arrested. Right? Sometimes fights broke out. They were attacked. Right? Many of them went to jail. Were prosecuted. Many of them were court-martialed. But it's a significant act of civil disobedience that I'm betting most people have never heard of. You know, uh, and it's sort of striking that first blow coming as it did in 1945. You know, of that post-war movement mentality. You know, then you mentioned the suburbs. Uh, 1948 Supreme Court case called Shelley versus Kramer, which said that neighborhoods could no longer employ this thing called restrictive covenants. So where can you live? as a black man or woman in America. Where can you live? You know, The restrictive covenant said you can't live here because we want whites only. No, we, we, no Jews. No uh, uh, Hispanics. No Asians. No African Americans. And you have to sign a contract to that effect when you buy property in that area. Well this uh, case in 48 threw that out. And so 
uh, you're building a stepping stone for broader cultural integration, cross-racial contact by opening up where people can live, which is a kind of, I think, understudied aspect of the civil rights movement in general as well, mm-hmm. right? Then you mentioned Jackie Robinson. Sports plays, oh wow, sports plays a huge role in the changes that will come in the 50s and 60s and that we're still struggling with yeah, even today. today. Still oh my God, absolutely. Shut yeah. Shut up, yeah. Shut up and, and dribble, uh, right? Or, or you know, how dare you take a knee? You know, fire that sob. You know, bringing politics into sports. Exactly. Well, the very fact that uh, 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 African Americans and white allies challenged the status quo going back to the '40s helped lay the groundwork for that, of course. And you mentioned Jackie Robinson, the most famous example. 15th of April, 1947, I think, yeah. Uh, Jackie Robinson takes the field for the first time as a Brooklyn Dodger, Mm. all right? And we think nowadays, oh my God, you know, black man plays ball, big deal, right? Well, it it was an earthquake in 1947 because this is America's pastime, baseball. Baseball, apple pie, it's all flag, it's all images of America. And now here comes a black man, and Jackie Robinson is a very black man. He's a very dark-skinned man, right? A highly accomplished athlete, of course. A man of great intellect and, and, and especially temperament. I could not have endured what he endured, you know? He was a veteran, too, wouldn't he? he? Absolutely. In fact, he was court-martialed because he refused to get up and move to the back of a bus. So he was already... You know, in the mindset uh, of that social justice mindset, you know, he volunteered to take this role on. The the, the uh, and everybody knows this story, but the 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 GM of the uh, the owner, I guess, of the of the uh, Dodgers, Branch Rickey, wanted to break that color line, and he needed a guy who could take it. And Jackie Robinson was that guy, you know. So that was a huge step forward because it broke a taboo that had been in place for a long time. A whites-only area was no longer whites-only, you know. Three months later, the Cleveland Indians, now they're called the Guardians, right, uh, they signed a man named Larry Doby just three months later. And that was it. Floodgates were open. By that time. It spelled the end of the old Negro Leagues. Uh, uh, and also it changed, not only did it change baseball, you know, different kind of style of baseball was played in the Negro Leagues, you know. A lot of base stealing, you know, whereas in the traditional majors you batted to get on base uh, uh, and then you batted to move people around the bases. In the Negro Leagues you get on base with an eye to steal, you know. It was a much more exciting, fast-paced game. All of that went over into the majors. So at the very least, it changed baseball. But in the broader picture, it changed American society because now you have people all over the country, right, watching baseball, following their favorite team. And when Jackie Robinson joined the Dodgers, suddenly he had zillions of fans and zillions of white fans, you know, who were looking at him and maybe gears were turning. They were seeing him in a different light. This is a black man that I have been taught to distrust and stay away from, and yet, wow, this is an admirable guy. Look at this guy, you know. Maybe my attitudes are wrong. And if, if that starts to click in white people's minds, 
then you've made a significant shift, you know. So you start to change attitudes, you know. But it's not just Jack Robinson or Larry Doby. You go to the NBA, and you got guys, and I'm sorry, I have to cheat to look at the names because I can't keep names in my head. Uh, Chuck Cooper, drafted by the Boston Celtics in, the ni- in 1950. First black ball player in the NBA. Followed quickly by Nate Clifton, Nate Sweetwater Clifton, who went to the Knicks. He's from Little Rock, by the way. Uh, and then Earl Lloyd, who went to the Washington Capitals. Three black players the same year of 1950. Again, changed the game of basketball. Much faster paced game, you know. But changed the country as well because here's another of America's favorite sports that now is more representative of what's going on, right? Mm-hmm. As far as the people attending, it's, it's usually kind of a casual sport. You don't have to necessarily dress up or anything. Oh, that's right. It's yeah. mostly indoors. True. And so it's kind of more of a laid-back experience, mm-hmm. except for when they're dunking the ball. <laughs> <laughs> and then back then they only had, what, like three or four uh, networks on television as well? Well, three. Three networks in the 50s. Maybe uh, there was a fourth network that was short-lived. Um, but most people went to basketball. Basketball was carried on television, but most people went in person. Uh, the important part of the story is that these guys were relatively quickly embraced Mm -hmm. and when the other teams in the NBA saw the difference that these guys made on the teams they were playing with then well maybe we should change our attitudes and bring some black ball players uh, in as well so again barriers falling down examples being set white people looking at this and saying this is this is good. I can this is good. I can deal with this. You know, I can accept this. My attitudes are changing. African Americans seeing this and saying, "Look at that! Barriers are being broken. We can break those barriers." And so, it, it creates a, a movement among both blacks and whites, mm-hmm. society wide. You know, then we go to tennis. It's the whitest of white sports back in the day. And a woman named Althea Gibson. Uh, Althea Gibson won 11 Grand Slam championships, African-American woman. Broke a barrier that may have been even tougher to break than Jackie Robinson's barrier in baseball, breaking into the lily-white world of women's professional tennis. You know, you know Althea Gibson was the first African-American man or woman to ever that's this bottle, to ever play at Forest Hills in New York where they play the U.S. Open. And this was in the early 50s. So there she is winning championship after championship, breaking down yet another barrier, you know. Uh, And so the world's, oh, I forgot to mention Ken Washington. Uh, A lot of people don't know who Kenny Washington is. Kenny Washington was an African-American football player who, who broke down the barriers in the NFL. Uh, uh, in the uh, in 1950, I believe. Let me check my cheat sheet here. Uh, no, 1946. I'm sorry. 1946. Ken Washington signs with the L.A. Rams. Plays three years. Right. He came from UCLA, same place Jackie Robinson came from. They played baseball together at UCLA. Uh, uh, scouts and agents thought that Ken Washington was actually a better ball player <laughs> than Jackie Robinson, a better baseball player. Uh, Robinson went to baseball. Uh, Ken Washington went to football. Signed by the L.A. Rams, breaks that color barrier, played three years, set a per yards rushing average record 
in his second year. Had to retire after only three years because he had bad knees. But here's the thing, when he retired in 1948, uh, 48 or 49, um, he got a really long standing ovation from a packed Coliseum house of 80,000 people, almost all of them white, you know, uh, who recognized the achievement of this man. You know, he was going to retire. 80,000 people on their feet for a prolonged period of applause, uh, which tells us something. It tells us about acceptance. It tells us about the, the broader society accepting this change that was now coming. You know, oh, yeah. inevitable changes in law, changes in the world of sports, uh, 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 changes in zoning and housing rules like Shelley versus Kramer, changes in voting rights. Again, we go back to the 40s. Uh, with a case called Smith versus Allwright, uh, which is known as the white primary case. African Americans could not vote in the Democratic primary in the South, and because the South then was overwhelmingly Democratic, what that meant was whoever was the Democrat in the general election would win. That was hands down, right? And so the real important vote was in the primary, picking the Democratic candidate. African Americans were locked out of that. 1944 case threw that out. So broadening voting rights in 1944, you know. Jackie Robinson signs in 47. Ken Washington in 46, okay. The Freeman Field mutiny in 45. A couple of more higher education cases, uh, uh, Sipul versus Oklahoma, where a black woman integrated the U of O uh, law school, all right? McLaurin versus Oklahoma. University of Oklahoma would allow African Americans to go to school, but you couldn't sit in the class. There's a, there's a terribly, you know, um, sad photograph of, of George McLaurin the complainant in this case, mm -hmm. you know, sitting outside of the classroom in a hallway where here's his class, his professor is lecturing, three or four empty seats, he has to sit in the hallway because of segregation rules, separate area in the cafeteria, separate area in the library. Well, his case in 1950 threw all of that out, okay? So by the time we get to Brown versus Board, which integrated public schools in 54, we'd already had a whole chain of cases leading us to that. Right. Social change, cultural shift, beginning in higher ed, going down finally to primary school in 1954, you know. Then we add to that the right to uh, uh, live where we said uh, before, live where you want, ride the bus, you know. People know who Rosa Parks is. You know, she wasn't the first one. Rosa Parks was not nearly the first one. No, we, we could go back to uh, uh, a couple of cases. One called Morgan versus Virginia. A woman named Irene Morgan mm -hmm. sat down on the bus. She refused to get up. The case went forward. This is 1946. Right? This is so. That's how many years? This is like eight, nine years before Mrs. Parks, you know, but we don't know who Irene Morgan is, you know. Uh, her case broke down segregation in intrastate busing. 
And there's a case called Sarah Keys versus Carolina Coach. A couple of years later, Sarah Keys, young black woman, didn't give up her seat. In interstate bus travel, she won that. There's a man named Elmer Henderson, demanded to be served lunch on the train dining car, just like all the white passengers were. Sued, went to court, won. So there's Elmer Henderson, there's Sarah Keys, there's Irene Morgan. We all know Rosa Parks, and rightly so. We ought to know these other folks too, you know, for the changes that they brought about. So what I'm driving at in all of this stuff is to say that uh, uh, before we get to the civil rights movement as we know it in the 50s, we're already looking at significant change taking place. You know? It's like another layer of foundation. Absolutely. Beginning in the World War II era, by the time we get to Mrs. Parks, by the time we get to Brown versus Board, all kinds of structure has already been built for that house, you know, mm-hmm. making it a lot easier, not, to, not by any means to say it was easy, because it was not, as you know, but uh, uh, I guess making it easier in terms of white acceptance, because We've been cheering for Jackie Robinson for several years and Larry Doby and Ken Washington and Althea Gibson and we've been looking at uh, uh, black faces on our television sets with Nat King Cole who had his own television show in the 50s. Uh, We've been going to the movies and seeing guys like Sidney Poitier. Motown. I'll get to that, yeah, in just a second. Uh, but uh, just, uh, you know, talk about movies for a second? Sure. Sure, okay. So one of, the, one of the key aspects of mass culture, popular culture, is the cinema. People love to go to the movies. It's the number one way, used to be anyway, the number one way people spent their leisure time money was to go to the movies. And the movies, again, both reflect back to us aspects of ourselves, and they model what could be, right? 1944, I believe is the year, a movie, came, a movie called Lifeboat came out, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. It's the story of a group of survivors after a German U-boat attack on a passenger liner. And there's a small group of survivors on a lifeboat. The whole movie takes place on the lifeboat, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the primary players in this film is, a, is an actor named Canada Lee. A lot of people don't know who Canada Lee is, but he's a groundbreaking African-American film star. Right? He has one of the leading roles in this film. Now, what's remarkable about Canada Lee's portrayal of this character named Joe is that on this lifeboat, he's not the flunky. He's not the comic relief. He's not step and fetch it, you know. He's portrayed as a real three-dimensional character, just like all the other characters who all, all of the rest are white, mixed of men and women. Uh, Canada Lee plays the only, he's the only black character. But he's, he's, he's portrayed in a, in, in, a, in a real way. And he is uh, a, a heroic figure uh, in the film. Uh, he saves two of the people uh, in the lifeboat. He himself is saved by one of the other members of the lifeboat. Uh, he helps make key decisions. In other words, he's a fully realized, flesh and blood, real person, and not some caricature. Ahead of time. Very much so. 
what Hollywood had been giving us were butlers and slaves and comic relief and buffoons, you know? People acting a fool uh, so that white people could basically laugh at them, you know? This is a completely different kind of portrayal, and it's, it, it's a landmark in that it marks this shift. So we jump ahead four years to a film called No Way Out. Sidney Poitier's first film role. He's a young guy, you know, very charismatic, you know, incredibly good-looking actor, right? Uh, he plays, uh, again, what's his role as a young black man? Is he, is he a thug? Is he a hood? Is he a criminal? Is he uh, 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 somebody's dumb sidekick? Oh, no. He's a physician. He's a doctor uh, who is in charge of taking care of these two convicts who were injured while they were being apprehended. Uh, and they're incredibly racist white guys. So the film's text, not just subtext, but the film's text is all about racial dynamics. And Sidney Poitier's portrayal of the doctor is, again, a groundbreaking portrayal. And it was a very popular movie, you know. And so here again, white audiences and black audiences in segregated theaters, by and large, especially in the South, are looking at these films. And they're seeing black characters portrayed with uh, a depth and humanity by excellent actors, all right? And it's changing minds. It's changing perceptions. It's, and so in this unusual way, movies are helping to pave the way for social change, as more people become accepting of these roles, racial, racially based topics as well were being discussed in the films. No Way Out addresses race. There are a couple of films, both from 1950, that deal with the subject of passing. Uh, light-skinned blacks trying to pass as white. I've seen one of those. Uh, there's one about the lady with the two girls. Uh, it's called Pinky. Yeah, I think so. Uh, uh, and there's another one called uh, Lost Boundaries, I believe. Let me take my cheat sheet here. Uh, um, I believe it's Lost Boundaries, both from 1950. Uh, and they both have to deal with this notion of, of, of passing as white, right? Interestingly, both films come to the same conclusion. Those characters who are passing end up rejecting that and embracing their blackness, if you will, you know. No, I am not white. I am of African descent, and I am proud of that, you know. Interestingly, that's how both of these films end up. One has to do with a single woman or, a, 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 you know, a, a woman. The other has to do with a family uh, where the father is a doctor up in New Hampshire, and they've been passing. The whole family's been passing, right? Uh, but interestingly, both those films end up with people rejecting that notion and not suffering undue consequences because of it. In other words, the film, in modeling behavior, as films can do, showed us that the whites that cared about these people still cared about them, even though suddenly now they see them as, as black or African-American. Uh, uh, again, that's... that's that's an experience that black and white audiences are seeing in the cinema, and it's affecting attitudes out in the real world. It makes you think. Yeah, absolutely. What would I do in this situation? How would I react? You know, how do they feel? How do, you know, what they must be going through? Yeah, yeah. 
So I think for a lot of, uh, uh, and I can only speculate, right? I think for a lot of African Americans watching this, you're seeing a positive affirmation of blackness, right? Mm -hmm. For whites, you're seeing people you thought were white being positive and affirming of their blackness, you know? But because they've been portrayed as sympathetic characters, you are sympathetic to them and you therefore can accept that, all right? So you've got cinema, you've got sports, you've got changes in the law and uh, uh, other social events. For example, the desegregation of the military, you know, by executive order in the, uh, in the early 1950s. That's an enormous social change. That's an enormous cultural shift. Yeah. Black and white uh, soldiers, sailors, marines, airmen can all serve equally together. And uh, Benjamin Davis coming in. Benjamin D- Davis in World War II, first African American to be uh, the rank of general attached to the Tuskegee guys. That's right. That's right. So, and every bit of this, every bit of it comes before what we think of as the civil rights movement. And culture is an intimate part of that, you know. Uh, There are other areas to talk about as well. We look at the print culture, uh, the black press. The black press has always been hugely important. Uh, And in the era before the modern movement of the 50s and 60s, the black press helped lay the groundwork for the change that was to come. Newspapers like the Pittsburgh Courier, or the Amsterdam News, which is out of Harlem. Uh, um, These are newspapers with national circulation, wide readership, that kept African Americans, and many white readers as well, uh, abreast of what was going on with African Americans. Uh, Because the the white-owned daily papers just didn't give any coverage to that. You know, so if African Americans and curious whites wanted to know, they needed to go to the Courier, they needed to go to the Amsterdam News, they needed to go to the Chicago Defender, which had, I think, the biggest circulation of all of these. You know, um, and so the newspapers as well, uh, an important aspect of culture that helped set the stage for change. Um, a man named John Johnson from right here in Arkansas. John Johnson is the founder of Ebony Magazine, 1945, I believe, and then Jet Magazine, 1951. Ebony Magazine, a magazine targeting African Americans, fashion, right? Uh, uh, News stories, uh, uh, cultural interest stories, things like that targeting African Americans. First of its kind. Entertainment. Exactly. What's up in entertainment? Beauty pageants. (laughs) That's right. And then Jet, which was a smaller format magazine, only recently stopped publication. Uh, Jet had uh, uh, stories that were a little bit more topical. For example, it was Jet magazine that kept the Emmett Till lynching in the public eye. Mm-hmm. by publishing that horrible photo of, of young Emmett in his casket, terribly disfigured as a result of his lynching. That's rough. Uh, 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 so Jet Magazine, Ebony Magazine, opens up for African Americans uh, access to that side of, of society and culture that the white magazines just weren't covering, you know? And a lot of whites, of course, read those magazines. They looked at those pictures. They saw those images. They saw those positive images. And it changed people's attitudes, 
you know? Um, in literature, Richard Wright's great book, and if you haven't read it, you ought to read it. It's called Black Boy uh, by Richard Wright, 1945, I think. Brilliant book, uh, um, along with uh, Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, which was 1952, which won a National Book Award and is now considered one of the great works of American literature. James Baldwin, Go Tell It on the Mountain. Uh, authors like Chester Himes, If He Hollers, Let Him Go, which is a great story of, uh, of uh, Los Angeles and the war production facilities and the, the, the way that black men and women were treated in those places. Historian named John Hope Franklin, who published his first volume of From Slavery to Freedom, A History of African Americans, in 1947. We never had that before. You know, uh, William Du Bois, W.E.B. Du Bois, had published some works of, on black history. But here's a, a, a scholar, African-American man, John Hope Franklin, who publishes this wonderful, this wonderful survey of African-American history that I think now is in its 10th or 11th printing, still in print, still widely used as a textbook. You know, And this represents a shift because now you've got university students studying black history, the African-American past, on its own. Of course, it's impossible to divorce it from the bigger story. Uh, uh, so, changes not only in, the, in, in literature, but in nonfiction as well, are introducing new readers, are introducing rather readers to the black experience. Many of these are white readers, and they're reading Richard Wright, Black Boy, and they're saying, wow, I think I understand something better now, you know? So it's changing attitudes. In the same way that when Jackie Robinson took the field, it changed attitudes, you know? So in the field of literature, you know? And you mentioned uh, Motown earlier. Right. I was listening to a podcast from uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, The 1619 Project. Mm -hmm. And one of the comments that she made that I hadn't thought of was that Motown basically was an early opportunity for black America to to have a voice against the the previous narrative of the vaudeville shows and the blackface and everything that came along with that, the Jim Crow and all that. Yeah, yeah. And she said this was like basically their first time to really, you know, have something to push back against that. Yeah, I I, I pretty much agree with that. Yeah, because you know, okay, let's talk about where that comes from uh, and the rise of rock and roll music. Mm -hmm. Beginning in the late 40s, early 50s, artists like Louis Jordan, again from Arkansas, Wynoni Harris, T-Bone Walker, playing what used to be called race music. You know, race music uh, then became known as uh, rhythm and blues, based as it was in the blues, which is an African American form coming out of the Mississippi Delta in the late 19th, early 20th century up-tempo version, so you mix some elements of Dixieland jazz and, and uh, um, ragtime, syncopated beats and things like that, and you got this new thing, which they used to call race music, then called rhythm and blues, right? Then you blow that up to big arrangements with lots of horns, and you've got what's called big band music, which is another invention that comes from African-American culture. Count Basie, Duke Ellington, right? Mm -hmm. Then you start to have whites who just start to imitate that 
and have their own big bands, right? Uh, and so is born the big swing music movement of the 30s and 40s. And swing music was by far the most popular music in the country during the World War II era, you know. Uh, uh, and so coming out of that, sometimes what's called jump blues, which is dance music, you know. Uh, uh, and then uh, you, you start to shrink down the instrumentation to small groups. And you've got essentially jump blues or swing music performed by five or six guys, you know. And this is where we get Louis Jordan, you know, uh, Saturday Night Fish Fry, and songs like that, or Wynoni Harris, you know, uh, that some people say is really the first example of what would become rock and roll music, uh, which comes from the combination of really three different places. Some of the twangy country and western stuff that, that was sometimes referred to as hillbilly music that almost exclusively whites listen to, right? Uh, and then the R&B stuff uh, that almost exclusively uh, blacks listen to. And you throw some elements of gospel in there, you know, and you get a, a different thing, you know. And the first performers of this different thing, artists like Fats Domino, uh, 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 Chuck Berry, Little Richard, particularly in New Orleans, right? Tutti Frutti and stuff like that, right? Uh, um, and it, it's a new form. It's like a new cultural form that came to be known as rock and roll music. And it began to cross lines, you know? There are two radio stations that are important to remember here WLAC in Nashville which beamed this music as a 50,000 watt station, very powerful, so you could hear it all over the country. And they played this music after midnight, what used to be called race music or R&B. And who was listening? White kids in California, you know, and all over the country are, 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 are digging this music by Little Richard and by uh, Louis Jordan and these other artists, you know. And they go out and they buy the records. And they're being exposed to what was essentially a black cultural form and they're loving it, you know? And so there goes, you know, some windows are coming down, some walls are coming down, you know? Should say windows are going up, right? Uh, and as this music becomes popular, of course, uh, record producers think, well, I, I need to make this more popular so I can sell more records. And so what that meant in the early 50s was, I need white boys to sing this music instead of black boys, you know. So Little Richard's great, he sells a lot of records, and you know, Antoine Domino, Fats Domino, great, sells a lot of records, but if I had, this is what Sam Phillips from Sun Records in Memphis said, if I had a white boy that could capture this sound, I'd make a million dollars. Of course, then he found that white boy, and it was Elvis Presley, right? Uh, and then later, Carl Perkins and Jerry Lee Lewis and other white artists began playing this exact same music to great fanfare, lots of publicity, even outselling the original artists whose work they, they, they built on. In fact, kind of what you could consider to be a kind of cultural co-opting of the music. All right? So I'm finally getting to Motown here. So by the time we get to the middle, later 50s, rock and roll music and especially now moving into the 1960s, rock and roll music gets kind of bleached 
it becomes wider and wider, you know. Uh, the black artists are playing uh, uh, the same kinds of material, but they're not selling as well or not as popular because so many white artists have come in to sort of take uh, 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 to take over, you know. So what then arises is the rise of what we refer to as soul music, right? Soul music is essentially R&B, which is the roots of rock and roll, uh, but it, it's, it's a kind of niche over here with a target African-American audience. But again, white kids love that music as well, you know? So they're listening to and buying that. Uh, uh, so that by the time we get to an artist like, old Jimi Hendrix, mm-hmm. late 60s, and people go, wow, Jimi Hendrix is a black dude playing wicked rock and roll guitar. Well, where you been, man? Chuck Berry was the original black dude who played wicked rock and roll guitar, and that was 15 years ago, you know? People had forgotten, even by the late 60s, that rock and roll was an African-American form, you know, because it had been co-opted. Soul music came along, and then so when you get a guy like Hendrix, people are surprised, you know. And even later, you get bands like Fishbone or Living Color, you know, hard rocking, but black bands. People go, wow, that's unusual. Well, no, it's not, you know. It's just getting back to the actual roots of the thing. The broader point I'm trying to make in a roundabout way is that there goes a whole other set of barriers, right? As white kids turn on to this music, listening to black artists, idolizing them, go into the shows, and the shows are by and large integrated. White and black kids go to the shows together. They, they like the music. They go to the dances together. Right. They don't necessarily dance one with the other, but they dance in side by side, you know? Uh, uh, rock and roll music was a powerful integrative force in, in uh, blending together. There's a great phrase that I use for this. It's, it's, it's the phrase transracial uh, 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 melding. There was this kind of transracial melding that took place mm-hmm. with the birth of rock and roll that broke down all kinds of cultural barriers. And now you got little teeny bopper white girls in Montgomery, Alabama, swooning over Chuck Berry and Little Richard, you know, black men. And it unforeseen development, right? Um, so, culture in all of its different aspects, I don't think can be divorced from other aspects of the civil rights movement. To me, Fats Domino and Little Richard are as important civil right as important a civil rights figure mm-hmm. as, as 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 Rosa Parks or or, or you know Ralph Abernathy or, or others involved in the in the core movement. You know, mm-hmm. they play different roles different functions, and they may not even have seen themselves as social justice pioneers, but they are, because they broke down the walls, they broke down the barriers, they created awareness in whites, same way that Jack Robinson did, same way that Ken Washington did, same way that Althea Gibson did, so did Little Richard, so did Chuck Berry, so did Dr. King, you know. Strange to put all those in one pile, but they are in one pile, you know. Right. Uh, same as Sidney Poitier, same as Canada Lee, you know. Same as Thurgood Marshall, who argues these cases before the Supreme Court, 
all right? So, same as those officers at Freeman Field who said, I'm not going to take this crap anymore, you know? Uh, uh, and protested, you know? So you have, in my mind, going from the mid-40s forward, the beginnings of a cultural shift that helped make possible the work of Dr. King, you know? That helped lay the groundwork, at least, for the big changes that were going to come later and that did come. And those changes kept coming, mm-hmm. you know. Television, for example, television is a very intimate um, um, entity, you know. It's in your living room. And you turn it on and you're in that act, you're inviting someone into your living room. Well, you're turning it on and it's a variety show, which there used to be a lot of, shows that featured different acts, you know. You turn it on to your favorite variety show, whether it was Milton Burrell or Jack Benny or Ed Sullivan or something like that, and lo and behold, there's a there's a black doo-wop group singing, you know, and you're sitting there in uh, uh, in rural Arkansas, and you're liking it, you know, you're liking it. Uh, you've invited black men into your living room, and you you live to tell the tale, you know, you enjoyed it, you know. Uh, when Nat King Cole had his own TV show, it was, it was a popular show. It went away because he couldn't find sponsors for it. White companies, white-owned companies wouldn't sponsor it, you know. But uh, uh, white television viewers loved it, you know. Um, um, when uh, movies would play on television, when No Way Out would come to television, people would watch it. So television created an intimacy, a kind of cross-racial intimacy as whites at home watching black faces on TV, becoming accustomed to that, perhaps changing their attitudes about African Americans, right? right? So in that sense, television is an important actor in this as well. And of course, once the movement proper gets going in the 50s and 60s, how is it that America knows about Bloody Sunday? How is it that they know about snarling dogs and fire hoses in Birmingham? They saw it on the television. television. They saw it on the television. And television brought it home to them, and television told them, this is what's happening, and the white folks in Indiana and in Oregon who are watching it are saying, that's wrong, and we need to change that. Otherwise, without the television, they may not have known that this stuff was going on. So, and, and that television, of course, is a critical aspect of popular culture. So, there's another device of culture that is making a profound effect in the cause for social justice. Right. So. It seems like each one of those is, is kind of like a tool for the movement itself in a roundabout way. The music and the, and the, the sports and the, you know, the TV shows and the movies. And yeah, the, the literature, the, the, all of it. The direct action protests, you know, mm-hmm. like Freeman Field, the court cases, working our way up to 54 with Brown, uh, breaking down barriers in housing and in how and where people can travel. Uh, uh, Black Panther yeah. comic books that became... Absolutely. Now, those come a little later, but yeah, one of the, it's interesting you mentioned that. One of the most popular comic companies in the 50s wasn't Marvel or DC. It was, it was called EC comics. And EC sponsored it, uh, or rather specialized in uh, horror stuff, vault of horror and, and stuff like that. And some really graphic stuff for its time. 
you know. EC Comics was also the first to, 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 to figure uh, black characters into their stories. There's one a famous one that comes to mind. It's a comic story, I don't, and I don't remember what the title of the, of the comic was, but it was an EC comic, right, where we meet an astronaut, uh, right, who's wearing a spacesuit, and he's mediating a conflict between these two races of robots on this other planet. Red robots over here and blue robots over here, right? And the red and blue robots hate each other and they're involved in a war because you can't trust a red robot and those blue robots are just born stupid and yeah, typical kind of racist tropes, right? Except robots in space, right? Well, the uh, human astronaut tells them uh, about human principles of fairness and equality and all of us are equal and what color you are doesn't really matter and all that kind of stuff, right? And so at the end, where you fully expect when this astronaut takes his helmet off to see a typical blue-eyed, blonde-haired astronaut, it's a black man. It's an African-American astronaut, you know, who's been the protagonist in this story. And it drives the message home, you know? And so here's a comic book that a 10-year-old kid in Cleveland is looking at and he's seeing the hero of the story and it's a black man, you know? Now that seems like a small thing, but multiplied by many, many thousands of kids and adults reading this, you know, every small step is still a step, you know, and it's still taking you forward. So even in comic book culture, we're seeing this drive towards social justice, right? Mm-hmm. So. All right. Was there anything else you want to add in? Oh, uh, uh, wow. No, I don't. It's uh, uh, a lot of information. I've been talking a lot. So uh, <laughs> maybe there's a question you want to ask that I haven't covered yet. I'll be glad to try to tackle it. I mean, you did a pretty good job of connecting all the dots and, and, and um, bringing in information that I think, at least for myself, and I'm sure other people good. as well would not have heard before or might not realize um, in the way that you've presented it. It's, it's very um, helpful. Yeah, good. And insightful yeah. at the very least. Yeah, well, thank you. I just, you know, I think well, there's... I your classes. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a clear connection right. between what we think of as throwaway aspects of American society, which is movies, TV, comic books, rock and roll. Those things don't really matter, people think. Well, baloney. Those things are central to the American experience and they're a central part of everyday people's lives. They impact us more than foreign relations or, or, or any of this other stuff that we, that we think are prime movers of history, you know. Right. So if we look at the impact that culture has on the struggles for social and racial justice, right, then I think we get a fuller picture of what the story really is. And it's not just court cases plus protests. It's court cases plus protests plus a lot of change in the culture that is moving us toward a goal, maybe without even realizing it. Changing you know? the minds of the masses through media. Precisely. That's a nice phrase. Changing the minds of the masses through media. Some nice alliteration there, Cliff. Uh, uh, that's exactly the point that I'm trying to make. Yeah. And for people who are interested in, in finding some of your books and maybe we'll purchase them online, where can they find hey, them? Hey, good question. Just, Just and Righteous Causes is the name of my book, and you can get it through the University of Arkansas Press, or you can order it off Amazon. 
uh, Just and Righteous Causes, Rabbi Ira Sanders and the Fight for Racial and Social Justice in Arkansas, uh, which I wrote a few years ago. So if you're interested in this uh, story of, of, of the struggle for racial and social justice, Rabbi Ira Sanders' story is just a small piece of that, but it's a critical piece for us here uh, in Arkansas. Uh, so go out and buy it. And then will you be <laughs> teaching online? People can sign up for your classes? No, since I've retired, I am retired. I will be teaching a graduate seminar in the spring, but then that's probably it. That's probably it for me. I'm uh, spending my time writing. This thing we've been talking about for this past hour is the book that I'm writing right now. Uh, when do you hope to have that finished? Now? Oh goodness, put the pressure on me here. Be a couple of years before I get it done. Okay, it takes time to pull all this together. Well, so. we'll have to get with us next time when you finish the book. <laughs> <laughs> good. <laughs> talk about the book. <laughs> Very good. Thank you, Cliff. Yes, sir. Thank you again.